0: Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home. If not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on Rolex.org. Just for a moment, imagine you've done your weekly food shop. You bring it into your house and begin unpacking. But you realise your fridge is broken. Nightmare, right? All of this fresh produce, which you know, in a matter of days, will perish. Losing texture, flavour, nutritional value. And if you want meat or seafood, you might as well eat it there and then. Or bin it to avoid that nasty bacteria build-up. What a waste of money. What a waste of time going to the supermarket and getting all that food, right? We know that fridges are a key element in every kitchen. Almost every household has at least one that is always powered on. Working non-stop to preserve everything inside it. But what if we didn't have access to a fridge what would you do with your food in low-income countries this is the exact question that local farmers ask themselves on a daily basis and often the answer is to discard it on the side of roads village fields abandoned market stores in these areas of our world 45 percent of food spoils mainly due to the lack of cold storage which leaves small farmers pocketless despite their hard work harvesting crops but there is a solution with incredible innovators who have made it their life's work to re-envision and educate a nation.
1: On the first day that we did that radio broadcast across eight radio stations, including ours, we received 7,899 phone calls, all asking, is it really true? Climate change, we hear about it, but we don't know that Mm. it's true.
0: I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. As we hear from the man who is revolutionizing Africa's fresh food cycle. In this episode, we're connecting to Nigeria, an African country on the Gulf of Guinea, known for its cultural diversity, colorful festivals, entertainment industry, and delicious cuisine. But despite the love for good food, Nigeria faces huge challenges with its current food production system. It's estimated that 37% of Nigerian agricultural production is lost due to inefficient or non-existent cold chains. And this food spoilage, due to a lack of cold storage, cost 93 million small farmers in Nigeria a quarter of their annual income. The food production crisis in Nigeria is a serious issue that has significant implications for the country's economy and livelihoods in the most populous country in Africa. In January this year, UNICEF revealed that 25 million Nigerians are at risk of facing hunger between June and August if urgent action is not taken. But thankfully, hope isn't lost just yet.
1: My name is Nemeka Ikewono and I'm a farmer, a radio presenter and a social entrepreneur
0: founder of Cold Hubs, solar-powered cold rooms for small-scale farmers, and the Smallholders Foundation radio station, aimed to provide rural communities with agricultural advice, Nemeka is an entrepreneur with a knack for farming and is passionate about improving Nigeria's food security and production cycle. The education and infrastructure that Nameka has helped to innovate has extended the freshness of food produce from two days to 21, and has had significant knock-on benefits to local communities and economies in Nigeria. But before Nomeki tells us more about cold hugs, I asked him what are some of the agriculture challenges Nigeria still faces today?
1: So Nigeria is a, a very large country. Uh, population-wise, it's estimated 200 million plus people. It's uh, considered the most populous country in Africa. And with that, you will see that there are a lot of mouths to feed every morning. Uh, We assume from official statistics that there are about 90 million uh, plus smallholder farmers and food supply chain actors, and these food supply chain actors include uh, the production folks, People who are doing wholesaling, aggregation of uh, produce, and also those who are doing retail, either in outdoor food markets or other informal community or village markets. You know, um, the agricultural sector is still very much subsistence. Uh, a lot of traditional practices. Um, it is still in development phase with uh, low penetration of uh, technology, you know, or mm. infrastructure that should actually drive. And increase production. So the challenge is facing smallholder farmers in Nigeria starts from uh, first, you know, unpredictable seasonal variations, which has increased significantly over the past five to 10 years due to uh, climate change. You know, there is also that challenge of having high quality seed available uh, for cultivation. Mm. And there is also challenges around having access to the right financing to buy imputes, prepare the soil for planting. And the mm. biggest challenge is actually access to markets. You know, the reason that exists is because the... The infrastructure that should give us robust food supply chain, you know, are not existing. Uh, The roads are not are not very good. Uh, Unfortunately, the farms are in rural locations, you know, where land is available. So you need to plan to bring food out from production centers to consumption centers, which are outdoor food markets in the urban areas. So it's a lot of challenge Mm. uh, bringing out food with very very. Uh, inefficient transport systems.
0: You know, you mentioned there, obviously, the demographics of, you know, I sort of think of Nigeria as, you know, one of the sort of world's fastest growing countries. And for people who don't know Nigeria so well, what are some of the sort of staple crops that farmers grow there?
1: A lot of uh, yam are grown in Nigeria. Yams are like huge potatoes. We have the Irish and the sweet potatoes. Uh, Nigeria is uh, Africa's largest producer of cassava, uh, cassava is just like a, a longer potato, but slim, more slim than the yam, and is used to make the local delicacy of fufu or gari. You know that most household consumes once a day. Rice is also a staple food in Nigeria and is consumed at least once or twice in a day by every household. Uh, there is huge production of maize, uh, both for mm. livestock and for Uh, household consumption. Soya beans, wheat, sorghum, you know. On the fruit and vegetable side, there is huge production of tomatoes, uh, ball pepper, um, spring onions, a lot of uh, green beans, uh, cauliflower, Mm. a lot of celery, uh, lettuce, cabbage, carrots, cucumber, and most recently uh, increased production around strawberry, citrus, mangoes, Mm papaya, pineapples.
0: What about livestock? Is that much of a thing in Nigeria?
1: There's a lot of livestock production going on. Mm. A lot of cattle, a lot of goats, mm. a lot of uh, poultry. Aquaculture mm. is huge and keeps on increasing mm. in metric tons every year. And there is mm. also production of turkey, guinea fowl. You know, we are huge. We are an agricultural country, actually. Yeah, and
0: you 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 said at the start there that you work a lot with, you know, there's a lot of smallholder... Farms, I mean, I presume they're important beyond just the food they produce. They're probably quite important locally in the communities they're based.
1: Yeah, in the south of Nigeria, most of the smallholders I work with, because land is very limited in the south, only about one to two hectares of land. You know, But in the north of Nigeria, where they have comparative advantage on land, most of the smallholders I work with actually are working on one to six hectares of land, which I consider significant.
0: And you were talking about some of the challenges there. And one of those was around sort of actually getting food to where it needs to be. Can you just explain a little bit about, you know, what happens to food that can't immediately be sent to market for one reason or another? You know, how's it stored at a farm or elsewhere? Just give a little bit of a sense of that.
1: So the traditional and predominant practice up till now is to, for instance, if I can use a tomato to illustrate, you know, Mm. um, once the tomato has uh, turned a little bit from green to early Mm -hmm. yellow, the farmers start plucking Mm -hmm. them and preparing them to be sent to the market. The tomatoes are usually spread out under a tree a little bit far away from the farm. They are kept there. It takes at least two to three days to get a truck across Mm. the bad roads to come into those villages to move those tomatoes out at least one Mm. or two days before the truck arrives the farmer rents raffia baskets you know the Mm -hmm. raffia Mm -hmm. is just a very light wood that you can bend Mm. you know and it's used to weave baskets they have small tiny needles in them you know and first of all the tomatoes are all packed inside these raffia baskets and the raffia baskets are then packed into the trucks and assuming the tomatoes was cultivated in the small village of Dusingwey in Kaduna, Mm. Northwest Nigeria, and the Mm -hmm. the farmer is planning to sell them at mile 12 market in Lagos. You know, this truck makes about 16 hours road trip uh, on one of the worst roads you can imagine. So as the food is traveling, the truck is always bending from left (laughs) to right and moving (laughs) up and down, you know. And these raffia needles keep on puncturing the soft shell of a tomato. So in the course of my going around to identify challenges in the food supply chain, I followed a tomato truck all the way from Mm. Kanu, northwest Nigeria, Mm. to Lagos in Nigeria. And, you know, the Mm. tomato truck was all dripping of water. The water that was coming out from that truck was actually the nutrients of the tomato. And that's the reason we actually eat the tomato, you know, to nourish the body. You know, by the time the food arrives, the outdoor food markets in the cities, You know, I think what is left of it is just probably about 20 or 30 percent of the nutrients uh, because uh, all of them have been lost on the road.
0: So that's a huge amount of food waste. I mean, the consequence of that is obviously food's more expensive than it needs to be because less of it's getting to market. Obviously, there's the environmental side of it as well. I don't know. Do you want to just talk through some of the sort of consequences of that?
1: The biggest challenge in food loss and waste is that all the resources that went into the production will be lost. The reason we cultivate food is not for it to be thrown away. You know, So at that time, the food is lost or thrown away. The entire water, the entire investment in seed, the entire investment in sunshine, uh, the entire investment in labor, all the environmental financial and human resources are all lost at the same time. Mm. You know, so it makes totally there is no need to start producing if we are going to throw it away. It's just like buying a brand new Ferrari, driving it to a cliff and pushing it across the cliff. So what's the essence, you know? <laughs> you know, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's really very important.
0: That's a very colourful way of putting it with the Ferrari. <laughs> so look, I wanna just um switch things up a little bit in terms of sort of coming round to your drive i guess
1: i think the biggest motivation came from growing up in an agricultural family where my dad uh, my mother rented farmlands and there were five of us and you know we needed to work alongside our parents right after school to grow crops or to tend to livestock and as i grew up i became very very interested in agriculture but, you know, I, I didn't want to practice agriculture, although every time I try to escape, it brings me back. I actually wanted to be a journalist. Because my parents listen to a lot of radio, because I listen to news and current affairs. I run the press club in the secondary school and also in the university, Uh, always writing about news, both uh, political, social, uh, spiritual Mm -hmm. or sports news, and at times a lot of foreign news, you know. After my university graduation, I had to go work with a non-profit organization that did uh, HIV, AIDS, and health education. And my work really was to travel to rural communities in Ibom State in the South-South region, Niger Delta area of Nigeria, to educate rural households on HIV prevention. You know. But I'm not a good health educator, frankly. You know. uh, when I travel to those communities, I spend hours having a debate about agriculture Um, with them, you know. There were forms I need to complete, you know, in the field. As a result of my field education, I completely forget completing those forms, you know. And I come back to the office and my boss one day told me, listen, you talk so much passionately about agriculture and you know quite a lot about it. And I told her I grew up with it, you know. And she said, you shouldn't be in the health space. You should go do agriculture, you know and i really had that uh uh, that aha moment that you might do something about agriculture you know delivering education to farmers like the ones i met in aquaibum state but i didn't know how to deliver that education until i started talking to people and some of my friends were like you have been talking radio from high school to university you should think about how to do it using radio and i was at Mm. that moment i said wow That that is something that should have been. uh, I shouldn't have overlooked initially. Yeah,
0: that's really interesting. So it's that sort of perfect marriage of your first hand experience of that farming world, and then you had this career interest in going down the journalism route, and then you've married the two, right?
1: Yeah. So the radio became the most attractive model because one, it speaks the language of the people; it is in tune with the way we learn in this part of the world, which is repetition. You know, so Mm -hmm. the radio provided that medium where we can slowly deliver key agricultural messages in the way our people usually learn, which is education and entertainment is called edutainment today. You know, you provide some key messages, you play their local music, you allow them to call back and make a little bit of joke, and you continue yeah. delivering those key messages. And it has worked very well. In 2003, uh, when I founded the nonprofit organization Smallholders Foundation to drive this process, um, from 2003 to 2007, I was going around trying to raise money to build a radio station. I was 21 years old. You know, everyone told me to go and look for a job. You just came out from university. It's it's not attractive to to have a 21 year old young man walk into your office and tell you he wants to build a radio station. You know.
0: Do you want to just give a sense of the the foundation's radio station, the sort of influence it's had? Maybe there's an example or two of how it's affected farmers and local people.
1: The perfect example is that in 2010 we received support from the World Bank, so we designed this very very interesting. Uh, educational radio series, and each episode from episode one to the last episode all had key messages like, you know, uh, how to um, mitigate and adapt to climate change Mm -hmm. uh, in livestock management, how to do rainwater embankments for dry season farming was all covered. On the first day that we did that radio broadcast across eight radio stations, including ours, we received 7,899 phone calls, yeah. All asking, is it really true? Is climate change, we hear about it, but we don't know that Mm. it's true. The reason those people Mm. we are calling back was because we broke down the science of climate change in their local language, using Mm. everything they see every day to communicate Mm. that this is actually connected to climate change.
0: Presumably they wanted to know what to what to do as well, presumably how they could ad- how they could adapt and so on. Yeah. And I
1: use that every yeah. time to illustrate the power of radio. It travels further than where the four wheel drive vehicles travel. And it's actually mm. a medium that the people trust in their communication. Mm.
0: Looking back, you were talking at the start there about, you know, you gave the example of tomatoes. Was there some sort of moment when you started thinking about you know, refrigeration and how that's stored, what were the sort of steps towards that? Because I understand you've done some work in that line of things as well.
1: So really, the moment was in August 2013. I was actually doing another 20-episode radio program titled Following the Cabbage. So you need to meet farmers at the point they were bringing in their cabbage into the market. So I travelled to Joss in Plateau State in the north central area of Nigeria, uh, where we have one of the largest cabbage markets, uh, in Faringada Market in Jaws, you know, and I met them in, at the height of their harvest season. And, you know, every farmer had either a truck full or a handful, a bucket basin full of cabbage in the market. The whole market was all covered with cabbage. You know, and I was trying to get farmers to run an interview, uh, I found a young man who uh, told me that the reason they're in the market this early is to hustle and sell their cabbages, and that he'll be very happy to talk to me later on in the afternoon. So I went around the market taking pictures uh, to support uh, our story, you know. and I came back to the spot. I met the young man. He said he, he, he struggled. He couldn't get a buyer. So they 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 just dump it on the in the market and go home. Whatever you sell, you take. You know, whatever you don't sell, that is it. And I said, how can how can that be a business? And he said, well, that's the way they are doing it. You know, and I asked him that critical question of what can be done. And he told me, you know, reluctantly, like th- there should be some form of cold storage in the market so that when we bring our cabbage, we can keep it in the cold storage. You know. And it actually struck me at that moment that there is no form of cold storage in the market. And this is a critical infrastructure to extend the shelf life of food that should be in the market and in the farms and in collection centers. You know, And I came back yeah. after that I- incident to, to, to the foundation and I was very excited to introduce to my colleagues that I think we need to do a small research on uh, cold storage, but the challenge was how do you build a cold storage in a country where you barely have two hours of energy supply, grid supply every day, Mm. you know? And we decided at that time that we have to utilize solar First, because it's the technology that is available. And secondly, because Mm -hmm. we have been promoting green practices and good environmental practices on our radio station. And we cannot be seen uh, running for sales. You know, so uh, in 2013, we started a research. In 2014, we built a solar powered cold room with a window unit air condition and Mm -hmm. took it around 11 states of Nigeria. We towed it with a truck. And in Gombe State, in the northeast of Nigeria, we asked some farmers who were using it, how would you like to own the product, this product here? Mm. And they said they don't want to own it, that we should own it and give them the moment to rent space. And that was how the business model of pay-as-you-store uh, started, you know, because the farmer said, make sure it's available every day. We will bring our produce and put it in there, but make mm. sure it's available. We don't want to own it. We already have an agricultural yeah. business going on, you know. And in 2015, okay. I decided to launch it as a company. And also stepped down from my position as a director at the smallholder's foundation and the radio station uh, pretty much because the investors that came into cold hubs told me that i have to run cold hubs as a as a full time and uh, because they are investing in me sadly i had to leave my passion in radio But I know I'm going back to radio after Cold Hubs.
0: I love the fact that you did a series called Following the Cabbage. I say that sincerely as an environment correspondent. So you've just touched on it there, obviously. I mean, Cold Hubs, why is it so important for farmers and the supply chain that supports them to rethink how they store their produce?
1: If you really want to extend the shelf life and make sure that that fresh fruit or vegetable appears with no discoloration. Same water content, you know, no wrinkles, smooth and nice. Then you need to put that commodity in an optimal cooling temperature controlled atmosphere. And that optimal cooling temperature controlled atmosphere is a cold hop. It is controlled at the optimal cooling temperature of between plus 8 degrees Celsius and 12 degrees Celsius, which is perfect for most fruits and vegetables.
0: And how many of these have you got
1: now? 58 units, serving 6,700 users across the country in 26 states of Nigeria. And pumped to build 40 more units this year. a lot of travels, wow. a lot of work here. So we're going to ramp up 2023. I think we're going to finish it sometime in Q1 2024.
0: We're talking to the entrepreneur and broadcaster Nemeka Ikagrunu. Nemeka has made it clear how crucial cold storage infrastructure is to farmers and communities in Nigeria. With temperatures reaching a scorching 40 degrees in their hottest months, it's easy to imagine how quickly fresh food can spoil, leaving farmers penniless and locals hungry. The early career in radio helped him to understand the importance of making coal chains more accessible to local farmers. And now, with 58 solar-powered coal stations across the country, offering 24-7 storage, farmers are able to increase the shelf life of the food they've worked hard to grow. Plus, as the hubs are installed in local markets, traders and townspeople have easy access to good quality food. I asked the Emeka if he faced any challenges when integrating the cold hubs into communities.
1: I think the difficulties is really changing perception of the people, you know, introducing new technology and to gain users who really felt that it was impossible, turned out to be a challenge. Building from a technology side or perspective is not really hard. You know, Mm. these cold rooms that come with six remote monitoring sensors that tells me on my mobile phones all the locations, ambient temperature, cold room temperature, Mm. number of times the door of the cold room has been opened, you know, each of these cold rooms have, you know, sensors that tells us energy storage in the batteries and the eyes, you know. And we even have a video camera inside each cold station that shows loading, mm-hmm. loading of food going on, you know. Okay. Yeah, the technology works. The solar installation is oversized. You know, each station yeah. has... Um, 25 kilowatts installed energy what we are using is just about 15 kilowatts you know so we have 10 kilowatts ss energy that we are trying to use to produce ice blocks in each location for most of the meat folks you know so it is a robust technology that works it is completely green
0: these cold hubs have the benefit of you know improving the quality of the food extending the life of it reducing the waste and so on presumably they have sort of Other benefits, presumably these end up generating jobs, for example?
1: Yeah, we've created a lot of jobs. You know, each code station creates two jobs for women. Uh, One is a hub operator. She oversees the loading and offloading of food and collection of user fee. And the second person is uh, her assistant who does marketing, uh, doing education, and onboarding new customers for that location, you know. So all together, we've been able to uh, provide about uh, 80 plus jobs for women.
0: Nemeca, we've been talking a bit about the success of the Smallholders Foundation and Cold Hubs. It would be great to know how important receiving the Rolex Awards for Enterprise has been to that success. And just to remind people, the Rolex Awards for Enterprise supports individuals with innovative projects that improve life on the planet, expand knowledge, propose solutions to major challenges, or preserves our natural and cultural heritage for future generations. Spanning more than four decades since 1976, the 155 Rolex Award laureates include an extraordinary cohort of pioneers across a wide range of geographical locations and skills. nemeke you won the award in 2010. Tell me how crucial it was for your work to receive it.
1: You know, prior to receiving the Rolex Award for Enterprise, nobody knew the kind of work I was doing. And the Rolex Award for Enterprise uh, gave me an incredible publicity, you know. The first publicity was, you know, opening a Time magazine and seeing a picture of me. And uh, I closed it back and kept it. You know, that was, that was, there was a lot of media. It was an incredible, incredible moment. I was on all global media, on CNN, on BBC, everywhere. That media attention comes with a stamp of credibility. And after that, we had a lot of um, interested donors who saw the video coming to knock on our door and and checking in, we want to know what you guys are actually doing. And most of those conversations ended in funding or capacity Mm -hmm. support for the team. We've received Incredible technical support to improve the skills of our team from several donors, you know, and we've also received a lot of donations in materials from companies who like what we are doing. So winning the Rolex Award remains one of the best moments of my career and it has Mm. actually led to success.
0: And on the um, people side of it, you're part of this sort of network of Rolex laureates. Do you want to give a sort of sense of how you've benefited from being a part of that, why that's important?
1: I think that's the best network anyone can be connected to because those are people who are doing the work. And at any point in time, you can call them and share experience or, you know, uh, check in with Jacob Coker in uh, Seattle, Washington State and run an idea through him.
0: And, and just for just for listeners who don't know who Jacob is, just explain who Jacob is briefly.
1: Uh, Jacob Coker is a colleague, um, Rolex laureate. We received the Rolex Award for Enterprise in 2010. There were five of us. We call ourselves the Originals because we were (laughs) the first winners of the Rolex Award for Enterprise. The Young Laureate Program, the year it was launched, we received it. There is Jacob Coker, who runs AI organization out in Seattle. There is... um, Mm. Uh, Brukte Tigabu, who runs Whiz Kid Workshop, doing educational programs on TV for kids. There is Reese Fernandez, who does rack to riches from Philippines, and she picks up waste textile and converts them to these powerful clothes and bags. And there is uh, Piyush Tewari, in India, who runs Save Life Foundation that has saved a lot of Indians who were involved in car accidents. So we are the five originals, mm. and we are connected. <laughs> we have our own WhatsApp and Facebook <laughs> page, so we communicate all the time.
0: Got you, got you, great. So look, you you were telling me how many of these cold hubs you've managed to establish, and I just wondered if there's particular person or community that you'd give as an example where it's really made a difference i wondered if there's one you might want to tell us the story of
1: i think i will tell a story about our first cold room in relief market it was opened on the 18th of august in 2016 yeah and you know prior to opening the cold room there were no form of cold storage for fresh fruit and vegetables in the market and in the course of opening it we did an educational outreach Uh, most of the women who were retailing tomatoes green beans spring onions they told us but that they will not store in that cold room because they don't put fresh fruit and vegetables in cold storages that they've never done it before Mm. you know and we Mm -mm. told them to do a trial for about five days and see the quality of food kept inside the cold room. And we purchased a little bit of uh, produce from them and also kept outside. So on the fifth day, we came back to this cold station and we asked these women, about 45 of them, to pick one tomato kept outside and the one kept inside the cold room and compare and contrast the quality. And we did it for all the commodities. And you know, it became an overwhelming success and to today that code station is the most successful of our 58 code rooms and it is very significant because from lessons learned from there we have been able to replicate in other locations you know and we've never yeah. lost a customer before there are 71 users in that code hub
0: when we talk about food waste in the uk it's quite often you know about food waste in the home and consumers wasting food We've been talking a lot, obviously, about food waste on the supply chain. What would be your sort of advice or maybe lessons that you've learned from your experience that can help people in Nigeria, but obviously internationally as well? What are some of the sort of big takeaways for you on how we really get to the bottom of tackling food
1: waste? These are human choices. And I think we should consume less to save the environment. Mm. We should consume less. There is no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, it is good for the environment, it is good for our health and it's good for our finances yeah. too. And I think we need to invest uh, more resources in connecting the supply chain, you know. I've been to the UK a lot of times and I've also followed the food from the farm to supermarkets in the UK and I've seen how organized that the supply chain has become, you know. I think in our world of so much advancement in science and technology, you know, getting the supply chain efficient in this part of the world can only be expensive, but it's not impossible, you know. And this is what technology has proven to solve over time. And clearly we should Mm. leverage on technology.
0: Listening to you talk today, I feel like, although obviously some of the solutions are about technology and about, you know, infrastructure, you know, building better roads and so on, it feels to me as well like a lot of the answers are about people.
1: It is around people and it's also around the choices that we make, you know. It is not rocket science, we are not trying to build a new rocket to the moon. The solutions are there, you know. We need to get the people at the political leadership to drive the process, provide infrastructure for not only food supply, but for human communication and connection too. You know, people live uh, several kilometers away from uh, the major third roads, and the major third roads are all filled with potholes. You know, it is is a challenge for local businesses in the villages. It is a challenge for them to get to the hospitals and the health centers when they are sick. It is a challenge for them to do any form of uh, uh, value-added work in their local villages, you know.
0: Uh, I want to finish with a sort of almost impossibly big picture question so forgive me uh, I, mean, I just wondered how hopeful you are for the future and I guess I'm thinking in a sort of social and environmental sense both for Nigeria but also for the world
1: I think for me i, I will I will really push for a comprehensive green living across the world and it's possible I think a green economy provides an credible opportunity for us to achieve environmental prosperity, health prosperity and financial prosperity. And I think that green living is the future, you know, gradually we are tilting to it. There is a lot of opposition here and there, but eventually it will become the future. That's what we will live in.
0: You've been listening to Planet Hope with me Adam Vaughan and my guest entrepreneur and broadcaster Nemeka Ikugunu This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative The series producer is Annya Pierce The production coordinator is Oliver Adamson and the production assistant is Sharna Johnson You can listen to us for free on the Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a review Thank you for listening Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus – to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet initiative on rolex.org.